going back to our reading from God's word. Through such books as the Chronicles, we get the history of the Jewish nation. Through this nation, our Lord came to earth. God chose his people for the fulfilment of his great promises and for fulfilment of his great purposes. He is still their God. As Paul writes in Romans 11, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. So he is still the God of the Israelites and he has his purposes yet to be fulfilled in them. And in the light of that, in the light of that truth, books such as the Chronicles take on new meaning and power. We see Christ in 1 and 2 Samuel and we see Christ in 1 and 2 Chronicles. King David is one of the primary Old Testament portrayals of the person of Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He worked as a shepherd and he ruled as the king of Israel. He was the anointed king who became the forerunner of the Messiah King. We see how the New Testament specifically calls Christ as one of David's line. Paul again writes in Romans chapter 1, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human, his human nature was a descendant of David. So Paul knew the lineage of, David, of Christ. He knew the genealogies. So he was called the descendant of David according to the flesh. And also as we see the words of Christ himself, as we go to the revelation given to John, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. We cannot argue with those words, can we? The covenant given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is found again in this chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles, which is what we are looking at this morning. It is the promise of the eternality, the eternality of David's throne. David's throne would last forever. And the promise of that eternality could only point to the coming of Israel's Messiah. 
the tribe of Judah, was placed first in the national genealogy, which is recorded in First Chronicles. Because the monarchy, the temple, and the Messiah would come from this tribe. And since Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Bible, the genealogies in chapters 1 to 9, in effect, lead on and into the genealogy of Christ, which is given in the first gospel, Matthew. In this chapter 17, we see that the prophet Nathan was too quick. He was too quick to encourage David in the noble enterprise of building a house for the Lord. He sort of jumped the gun because he said to David, whatever you want to do, you can do it. How did David or how did Nathan know that that was God's will for David? So he jumped the gun a bit. But the prophet, being a true prophet of God, his ears were always open to God's voice. And so that night, he received the words from God that he delivered to David the next day. We don't know whether God rebuked him first and said, you jumped the gun, Nathan, telling David he could do all that stuff. But Nathan's ears were open. He listened to God. And then he received the words from God and delivered them to David the next day. Ten times in this chapter, David is called the servant. And what do we know about servants? The servant does not command the master. The master commands the servant. So it wasn't right for David to run off and do what he thought he was going to do. Even though it was done in love. And what a wonderful master the Lord God is. Whether we look back at the past, as we read in that chapter, where God tells him, I took you, I have been with you. Or we look to the future in that chapter, where God says, I will, ten times. I will do this for you. So we see the grace. We see the grace and the goodness of the Lord God. And how David was humbled by that grace and by the goodness of God. It is one thing for each one of us to know God's promises and quite something else to claim them, to claim them by faith. We are to not only know them, we are to claim the promises of God. So like a little child, David went in and sat before the Lord. And he thanked God for the grace and the mercies that he had been shown and that he had been promised. And then he said, 
as Jesus did many years later. Lord, not my will, but yours. You do it. So faith. Faith turns God's promises of grace and mercy into reality. But before any prayers of request, you and I should take time to praise God, to praise the Lord for the grace and the mercy that he has shown each and every one of us. Now I have titled this sermon today, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Because, believe it or not, it is this chapter 17 of First Chronicles, and especially verses 16 and 17, that inspired John Newton to write the words of his famous hymn. In his journal, on the 21st of March, 1796, at the age of 70, he wrote in his journal, Oh, it was mercy indeed to save a wretch like me. He never forgot that what he called the great turning day, that great day of turning in 1748, when, as an obstropolous, rebellious young man, he was surprised. <clears throat> he was surprised to hear himself crying out during a violent storm at sea. The Lord have mercy on us. For it was on that day, <clears throat> it was on that day that he discovered how precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. And every year that followed, he kept the 21st of March apart as a day of remembrance for thanksgiving, fasting and prayer. The words of amazing grace were etched on his heart daily. But it is assumed that he first wrote this hymn for his New Year's Day sermon on the 1st of January, 1773. Because it fits his sermon notes so closely. And the text he chose to write above his sermon notes is 1 Chronicles 17, 16 and 17. It is identical to the sermon's text. Who am I, O Lord, that you have brought me safe thus far? O God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. John Newton took his three sermon points for the morning, for that New Year's morning, from this passage of scripture. Look back, look forward, look around. Look back, look around, look forward. <clears throat> First of all, he was looking back. The Lord reminded David in this chapter what and where he had been. I took you out of the pasture from following the flock. In verse 7. And David must have marvelled that God had brought him from such a lowly position. Who would have ever imagined that a shepherd boy would become king and ruler of Israel? 
Verse 16. Who am I, O Lord God? And so Newton is likewise astonished. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Secondly, look around. The Lord goes on and tells David, I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. He says in verse 8. And David considers that. You have brought me safe thus far. In verse 16. He says again, you have brought me this far. And so John Newton reflects on this. Through many dangers, trials and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. The grace of God. And thirdly, we look forward. And the Lord promises that he will build a house for David. I will build a house for you. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And I will establish his throne forever. Verses 10 to 12. What a great promise. David is overawed that God has spoken about the future of his house. The future of the house of his servant. And has promised these good things to your servant. In verses 17 and 26. This is cause for rejoicing. Rejoicing by David. And it is cause for John Newton to rejoice. As he writes in the words of his hymn. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. So we can see where John Newton was coming from on that day that he preached this sermon. That he chose those words to give to his congregation. And we know that the Lord bestows many blessings upon his people. But unless he likewise gives his people a thankful heart, those blessings lose much of the assurance that they should have had. And they lose the assurances that the people, you and I, should have in them. David, now safely ensconced as king of Israel, had that thankful heart. And he desired to build a house for the Lord. This honour God had appointed to his son Solomon. Because David's hands had been dipped in blood. So the honour of building the temple would go to Solomon. But he graciously accepted David's intentions. Because David's intentions came from simple love. Love for his God. Love for his creator. But so God sends David a message through Nathan. Assuring him that yes Solomon would build his house. But then he gives David an even greater promise doesn't he? 
he says that God himself, God himself would build David's house. So the Lord tells David that I will build your house and establish your kingdom forever. This filled David's heart with praise. The text is part of his acknowledgement. The second half of that reading is David's acknowledgement of the thankfulness that he feels for the Lord. To be told that your kingdom would last forever and one of your descendants would always be on the throne of Israel. That not only meant that his line would continue forever, but that God's people, the house of God, would continue for that same length of time. So I would put it to you that as we begin this new year, and we're into it for a couple of months now and we've been doing a lot of things, but I would put it to you that we could read that second half of the chapter, verses 17 to 27, because they lead us to a consideration of the past mercies that we have received from God and our future hopes and intimate the frame of mind which we should have when we contemplate what the Lord has done for us and what he will do for us. Let us look at a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves. One, who am I? Who am I? This question should always be on our mind. Who am I? What was I when the Lord began to manifest his purposes in me? Where was David when the Lord began to work on him? A shepherd boy in the fields outside Bethlehem. So where were you and I when the Lord began to manifest his purposes in us? Was I miserable? I might not think I was, but I probably was. Shut up in sin and unbelief. What was my future if God had left me in that sin, in that state? After a few years spent in vanity, I would have sunk to rise no more. Oh, if God had not touched me and brought me out of my own self-willed, self-controlled life. So, was I miserable? Was I rebellious? I would think so. Because you know, you and I know, that there is no grey area. You can't have a foot in both camps. You are either with God or you are against him. Christ said that quite a few times. You are with me or you are against me. It's like being a football supporter, isn't it? You either like Collingwood or you don't. There is no in-between. There is no grey area. You can't sit on the post. So, yes, you've got to say that 
you were rebellious, blinded by the gods of this world, breathing a spirit of defiance against the Lord God. But his grace and mercy comes to us, comes to us not only undeserved, but also, in a lot of cases, undesired. Because as Paul explains to us in the very first chapter of Romans, that we suppress what we know. God is, God exists, and God has revealed himself to us. We only have to look around at his creation. We cannot say we do not know there is a God. God is, and he has revealed himself to us. But men suppress the idea of God, suppress God, suppress Christ at every opportunity. Go and do something else. It'll take away anything to do with God. Go down and have another drink at the hotel. Go and play another ten rounds of, of um, squash or whatever you're into. Go to the gym and work out for another hour. That'll get God out of your mind. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to suppress any idea of God. So we are rebellious if we are not with God. We resist his call. And we endeavour to shut him out of our hearts. But he overcomes us by the power of his grace. In a letter to Titus, Paul describes our true state. When he says to Titus in his letter, chapter 3, verse 3, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generous, generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Amen. And we were, as he tells us, as Paul tells us there, we are undeserving. It is God against whom we sin and it is he who shows us mercy and grace. He did not have to. What a cause for admiration and worship that he should appoint such salvation in such a way in favour of such helpless, worthless creatures as us. So we start with that first question, who am I? The second part of that question is that thou has brought me safe thus far. And here we look back. We look back before conversion. 
before that day where his providential care has been preserving us. His providential care preserving us from a thousand seen and millions of unseen dangers. When we did not know him, he was watching over us. His secret guidances, his leading us by a way we did not know until that time when his love came into our lives. We look at our lives and think of what went on to bring us here, that we are here this day, at this point in our lives. It is amazing to think. When I look back at my own life and when I was 17, they put me in hospital and removed my left lung. Now I think back even before that, before my, that happened, and that was back in 19, well way back, 1968. And I think of how we played and how we did things as children and the many stupid things we did and me not knowing how badly hurt I was inside. That at any time we could have done something in the channel, by the house, climbing the tank stands, trees, throwing bottles at each other at the local tip. All those things we did that one slip could have ended in disaster. Someone needed only to hold me underwater for a bit longer than usual. Or silly things we did as kids. But here I am today. And for 40 years, I've survived on one, on one lung, which is amazing. And I can see God's hand, his providence in that. So yes, his providential care preserving us and watching over us until that time. His love came into our hearts and we, we responded. So what happened at conversion? The means by which he acted on us. That never to be forgotten hour when he enabled us to hope in his mercy. Some of us will say that, again like myself, I went to church Sunday school from when I was able first to go to school. And so Christian things were always a part of my life. And some of us will say it was just a gradual thing, that I have always followed Jesus. But others will say they know the precise date and the precise hour, as Paul did on the road to Damascus, wasn't it? When he had that experience and met Christ. Some of us have got those. And some of us will know the time. And so he showed us his grace and mercy. And we accepted that grace and mercy. And what has happened since we gave our lives to him? That mercy and goodness have followed us. It has followed us in the physical because he has led us and he has fed us. It has followed us in the spiritual because he has preserved us from wasting sins. He has maintained his hold on our hearts in face of so much opposition in this world. So many temptations and provocations. And he has given us great comfort in secret worship and in this public worship. He has given us answer to prayer, both seasonable and out of season.
He has given grace to those who are near and dearest to us. He has given us peace in our families. And he has blessed us with a church and people that he calls his own. And our third point is, God, you have spoken about the future. What we have had in the past are but small things compared to what will follow, to where, compared to what we are looking forward to. God has spoken of eternity. Present mercies and comforts are great. They are good, but they are foretastes of the joy to come. We are travelling home to God, where we will see Jesus. And we will never complain of sin, sorrow, temptation or desertion anymore. So, we can liken this to the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. And we have only, and some would think, well, maybe this is where John Newton was inspired. But on, because on two occasions throughout that parable, Jesus says these words to his hearers. You remember the story. The young man has taken his inheritance and gone off into the world and blown it all and is now feeding pigs and decides that he will go back and ask to be a servant in his father's house because his servants will be eating better than he is where he is in the pigsty. But the father, with so much grace and so much love in his heart, sees his son coming down the road. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine is dead, was dead, and is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. And again when the older son made his objections, again the loving father, with only a father's love, says, but we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. So from all of this we must infer, first of all, love, gratitude and obedience. As Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, God's grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are to have trust and confidence because we have good reason to cast our cares upon him and to be satisfied with what he has given us. Because Mark says people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And of course we must have patience for yet a little while and we shall be at home. As Paul again writes to the Romans towards the end of his letter, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. 
because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We are into a new year. We need to renew our claim on the promises of God. Renew our claim on God's grace and his mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Yes, Heavenly Father, we must believe in the grace that you have given each and every one of us. We have the grace of God. Some people say that it is God's riches at Christ's expense. And Lord, we must come to recognise that, that it is only because of what you have done through Jesus Christ our Saviour that we can be reconciled unto you. It is nothing we have done, nothing we can do, but we must have faith in Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and we will receive that grace, your riches, that you will give each and every one of us. It is amazing grace, amazing grace that saved each and every one of us, Lord. Dear God, let us go from this place celebrating that grace and mercy and hoping to pass it on to others that we meet along the way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.